Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Killer Astrology. I'm your host, Laura, and today we're exploring a case that I've been dying to cover for quite a long time. The disappearance of Maura Murray has stumped us all for 17 years. So to get some of our questions answered, I'm doing things a little differently. We're going to cover this case pretty extensively, and it's going to take two episodes to do it. In addition to going over the story and the astrology like we usually do, my guest, Valerie from Yamada, is going to do an intuitive tarot reading for us in part two of this exploration. Before we get started with the story, let's talk briefly about what's upcoming in the sky for us on the heels of the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Aquarius. Today, December 27th, 2020, we're working with a trine between the Sun and Uranus. The Sun represents our identity, and Uranus represents spontaneous change. So this is a time when it may be easy to make some much-needed changes in your life. Who do you want to be, and what can you change to be more aligned with that path? It's a good time to ask yourself this question, especially because coming up in a couple of days on the 29th, we have a full moon in Cancer, the sign that rules our emotional security. This is a good time to release some additional baggage that you've been carrying on to in order to move forward in your desired direction, less burdened by feelings and attachments that may have been holding you back. What do you need to let go of in order to make the changes in your life that you desire? You'll have time to ponder these questions and many more after we explore this case, which we'll do right now. Maura Murray was born May 4, 1982, to her parents, Frederick and Lori Murray. She grew up in Hanson, Massachusetts, a small town between Boston and Cape Cod. She was one of five children, sharing her home with two sisters, Julie and Kathleen, and two brothers, Kurt and Fred Jr., when Maura was six years old, her parents divorced, and she lived with her mom, but she and her siblings got to spend lots of time together with their dad, who was a very active participant in their lives, coaching their sports teams and taking them on adventures whenever he could. Given that Maura was from a large family of seven, they didn't have a lot of extra money to go on vacations, so they spent most of their time off on outdoor excursions. They would go camping and hiking in New England, spending most of their outdoor time in eastern New Hampshire in a town called Bartlett. In a documentary series on oxygen, The Disappearance of Maura Murray, Kathleen, Maura's sister, remembers her as always being the leader of the pack, the first in line on their hikes through the woods, and everyone else would have to follow in her footsteps. And she didn't just have this energy on her family trips. She carried her energy and perseverance through everything she did. Maura grew up playing sports with her sister, Julie. Together they played basketball and ran track, and they were always in healthy competition with each other. Julie was a year older than Maura, and they were always seeking to break each other's records. Their father would coach them in their favorite sports, always pushing them to succeed. In high school, Maura wound up winning the fastest mile in her district and was recruited by multiple Division I schools, including Ivy Leagues. And she made the choice to go to West Point, the military college in New York, one of the hardest schools in the country to get into. She was there for a year and a half studying chemical engineering, and it was there that she met her boyfriend, Bill, who she dated long distance when she ultimately transferred out of West Point to study her mother's profession, nursing, at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Maura lived on campus at UMass, and although she was back in her home state, she was still pretty far from home. 
Her hometown of Hanson, Massachusetts, was south of Boston on the east coast of the state, and UMass Amherst is about an hour and 45 minutes west of Boston. So she was far enough away to be on her own, but close enough that her parents could easily come visit when they had reason. In early February of 2004, Maura's dad drove to Amherst to visit her and help her purchase a new car. He withdrew about $4,000 from his bank account and drove to see her for the weekend to visit some car dealerships and shop around. After a day of searching, it turned out that there were no cars they could buy within their price range, so they didn't take anything home. This meant that Maura was using her dad's car to get around for the rest of that weekend to avoid driving her own. On February 7th, it was a Saturday, Fred and Maura went out to dinner in her small college town, where they ran into one of Maura's friends, who invited her to a party that night. And she went. She left the party between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on February 8th, and she was driving her dad's car home. On her way back to her dorm, she got into an accident, hitting a guardrail on a street in Hadley, Massachusetts. The police were called and an accident report was drawn up, but Maura didn't get into any serious trouble. Still, she was upset that she had crashed her dad's car, but her dad wound up being pretty understanding considering the circumstance. It turned out to be a relief that the damage would be covered by insurance as long as Maura retrieved an accident report in the next couple of days. And it seems that she did pick up that report because those papers were later found in her car. But when she picked up those papers is unclear because the timeline of her next steps is relatively short and vague. The party that Maura went to on February 7th is one of the last places in Massachusetts that she was seen. Two days later, on Monday, February 9th, 2004, Maura went missing about 150 miles from her college in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, where she had driven on her own accord in her own car. There's a lot of information that we don't know about what happened to Maura on February 9th, but there are a few key points from her actions that are clear. For one, we know that Maura was up late on Sunday night completing a homework assignment, which she emailed to her professor at 3.32 a.m. on Monday. Later on Monday, she emailed the rest of her professors, saying that there was a family emergency and she would be out of school for a week. She also emailed her work supervisor to say the same thing. Then, she started reaching out to hotels in the area of Stowe, Vermont, but she didn't actually get in touch with anyone. She was just receiving automated recordings. Also on February 9th, Maura got in touch with a friend from whom she had borrowed some clothes, and she said she wanted to drop these clothes off by her dorm before she went home to deal with her emergency. Even though her friend said this wasn't necessary, Maura wound up dropping these clothes off outside of her friend's room because she knocked on the door and her friend didn't answer. Around this time, she also called her boyfriend Bill and left him a voicemail saying she'd talk to him later. Then, just about an hour later, Maura left campus for good. So about 12 hours after she sent the email to her professors saying she'd be gone for a while, Maura got in her car and drove to a local shopping center, where she drained her bank account at an ATM and then headed to a liquor store, where she bought about $40 worth of alcohol. Then she started her journey to New Hampshire. From the liquor store, it took Maura about three hours to get to the spot on Route 112 in North Haverhill, where she was last seen. It was three hours to make a drive that should have taken two. And then, on that road in rural New Hampshire, Mora crashed. Police estimate that the time of the crash was about 7.25. 
Two minutes later, at 727, a resident of one of the properties on Route 112 saw Mora's disabled vehicle and called the police. Three minutes after that, a different neighbor, who was a school bus driver, was coming home after his rounds and stopped to ask Mora if she needed help. He said he would call the police for her, but she said no, stating that she'd already called AAA and was waiting for them to arrive. Now, the problem with this statement was that Mora couldn't have called AAA, because in this remote area in rural New Hampshire, there was no cell service. So this bus driver was pretty suspicious because he saw this car that had the airbags deployed and Mora didn't want any help. So when he got home, he called the police on his own accord. That was around 7.40, but when he called dispatch, the lines were tied up and he couldn't get through. So they wound up calling him back at 7.43 and they got his wife, who said she had, quote, no idea, quote, where the girl who crashed was. At 7.46, now this is three minutes later and only about 21 minutes after the crash, police arrived and they saw clear evidence of the accident. Mora's car had hit a tree and had turned all the way around, so the front of the car was now facing the wrong direction. And they found other things that they would typically expect to see in a college student's car, like candy and makeup and school supplies. But they also found a lot of alcohol, a box of red wine, Baileys, and eight wine coolers that had originally been a part of a 12-pack, so four were missing. They found all of these things, but they didn't find Mora. When EMTs arrived on the scene 10 minutes later at 7.56, there was still no Mora. She was gone. And that's the mystery. She just disappeared. After the crash, police came back to the scene with dogs, who were only able to track Mora's scent to the middle of the street, where it then dissolved. They found no footprints in the snow in the woods in the surrounding area. There was no evidence at all of where she went. So, naturally, there are lots of theories. Online forums hold thousands of ideas about what happened on the night of February 9th. Maybe she killed herself. Maybe she hitchhiked off the scene. Maybe she was kidnapped by a serial killer. But many people think she left on her own. And here's why. Let's backtrack to the events leading up to Mora's disappearance. We know that Mora started off as a student at West Point, where she studied and ran track for about a year and a half before transferring to UMass. While she was a successful athlete and a successful student, there was an incident that, in the law's eyes, made her less than a model citizen. On a trip to Fort Knox with her friends, Mora wound up stealing small items from a department store, something like nail polish and a lipstick, things that cost about $5, and that she later said she had the money to buy, but felt compelled to take nonetheless. This incident led to a hearing at her college, the results of which forced her to leave. In order to avoid being kicked out of West Point, Mora was allowed to transfer, and that's when she chose UMass. But at UMass, Mora didn't stay out of trouble. In November of 2003, she was caught stealing again. Mora was using stolen credit card numbers to order food. One night, she ordered a pizza, and UMass police, who had earlier received a call from a woman whose credit cards had been compromised, followed the pizza delivery guy into the Kennedy dorm where Mora lived. When they saw Mora come down for the pizzas that had been purchased using someone else's credit card, they knew she was the culprit. 
Mora was cited for this offense and went in front of a judge who put the charge on her record, but stated that it would be removed if she kept herself out of trouble for three months. This is important because that car accident that she'd gotten in in her dad's car was about two months after this November incident. So even though she didn't get in trouble by police, she probably was pretty nervous. Another complicating factor here is not legal, but familial. Before her dad came to visit her that week of February 7th, Maura was at work where she received a call from her sister, after which she hung up crying. She was so distraught after this call that her supervisor walked her back to her dorm. We don't know much about the details of that phone call. Maura's sister says that at that time in her life, she'd just gotten out of rehab for alcohol and that she had started drinking again almost immediately after her release. So could it be that Maura was upset that she hadn't stayed sober? We don't know. One more complication in this story is about Maura's boyfriend, Bill. After she went missing, packed boxes were found in Maura's room. Now, this was just after the start of her semester. She had just moved from West Point to UMass, so these could have been boxes that were still packed from her move, as opposed to the alternative, which would have been that she'd packed them herself before leaving on her trip. Regardless, on top of one of these boxes was a letter from Bill, her boyfriend, that explained that he had cheated on her. So there is the question about this infidelity, and this infidelity coupled with the legal issues that Maura was facing, and the issues with her sister, could have been enough to make her at least want some time away. But we may never know. We can look to astrology for some clues, which we'll do right now, and then in our next episode, we'll have a tarot reading from Val. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that we're exploring this case extensively. I've been reviewing the astrology of this case for a while now, and I've also gone over it with my mentor, Alan Oaken. There's a lot to dissect. For this episode, I'm going deeper into the astrology than I really ever have before, and I might be sharing things that are a little bit more advanced than usual, but that's because the mystery of this case demands a really deep dive. I'm going to do my best to break things down so they're easily understandable and to give you my conclusions about what I'm seeing as much as I can. Maura Murray was born May 4, 1982 at 3.40 a.m. in Brockton, Massachusetts. She has a Taurus sun, a Libra moon, and a Pisces ascendant. Her Taurus sun makes her a hard worker and absolutely contributes to her stamina for physical activity. Taurus is generally very gentle, connected to the earth, and loving towards all living creatures. But Taurus has another side that's completely immersed in self-preservation. Taurus is represented by the bull. It's strong and steady, and of course a little bit stubborn. And when it's triggered, it can become relentless and use its strength to withstand blows from the enemy in any threatening situation. Think of a rodeo where competitors essentially risk their lives to try and wrangle a bull that doesn't want to be tamed. It's tough work, and it shows you just how much strength lives inside the bull and lives inside the Taurus. There's a lot of energy stored in those muscles, and Mora had big stores of internal energy. Interacting with her Taurus sun is her Libra moon, which is always seeking emotional balance, justice, and fairness, particularly in relationships. And this attention towards keeping people happy can sometimes make it more difficult to form one's own opinions and to know how to satisfy one's own needs. It may have made Mora's understanding of her identity a little bit complicated because her identity was so wrapped up in other people. 
What's really important to note about Mora's Taurus sun and her Libra moon is that they're both ruled by Venus. Each zodiac sign has a planetary ruler, and that ruler's position in the birth chart is very important for understanding that area of life. So Venus in Mora's chart is very prominent on the basis that it rules the signs occupied by both her sun and her moon, arguably the two most important planets in the birth chart. But Mora's Venus is even more predominant than, say, the Venus of another person who has a Taurus sun and a Taurus moon. And that's because her Venus is in the first house. The first house contains themes of personality, appearance, and attitude towards new beginnings. Its themes govern how we present ourselves to the world, and any planet in this position carries extra weight. So in understanding Mora's story, we really need to understand the themes ruled by Venus. Venus is, of course, known as the planet of love, but its themes go way deeper than that. Venus is about our values, what we desire, what makes us feel stable, and from that, our relationship to money. It's also connected to themes of attraction, and having Venus in the first house of appearances likely made Mora pretty attractive to men. With Venus in the first house, she was called to be really attentive to her values, her own sense of stability. But with Venus opposite her Libra moon, she had a tendency to move in the other direction, towards other people. It's a pretty straightforward duality. Do I pay attention to my own needs, or do I put more stock into the needs of others? With this opposition between Venus and her moon, balance is possible, but it takes a long time to get there. In Mora's case, she had a number of other planets in her seventh house, which gave her a heavier focus on relationships. And the most important planet there is Mars, which is exactly conjunct her moon in zero degrees Libra. What can this conjunction tell us? Well, first, it can tell us a bit about Mora's relationship with her mother. In the coverage of her story, we hear a lot about her relationship with her dad, but we don't hear much about her relationship with her mom. I think that could be because she was much closer to her father. It was easier for her to connect with him because there was less pressure involved in that relationship. With Mars conjunct her moon, her mom could have been pushy or assertive, and that's not always the most comfortable in a relationship. But it does kind of mirror Mora's internal world. The position of the moon in the birth chart identifies where we go to retreat, to heal, to regenerate after a long day or after a difficult situation. With Mars so close to her moon, Mora's place of retreat wasn't calm. It was full of action and intention towards forward motion. It wasn't quiet, and it could be that Mora didn't often let herself have time to regenerate or to stay still, because Mars requires action. We know that she was a runner, and this was probably great self-care for her. The moon also indicates self-care, Mars' is energy and exercise, and so you can combine the two here. But outside of running and exercise, where did she go to let off her steam? Probably relationships, maybe even sex with Mars here. Or maybe she didn't even know that she needed self-care. Let's go back to Mora's Venus for a second, because there's some other really important themes we need to understand that are connected to this placement. Mora's Venus is in her first house in 29 degrees Pisces, and this Venus is square to Neptune at 26 degrees Sagittarius. Now we know her Venus is opposite her moon and her Mars, so this Neptune is also square to her moon and her Mars. Now, Venus is about values and money, but it's also about romance and love, 
And Neptune is about fantasy. And the Libra moon here shows that Mora sought comfort in relationships. So what can we deduce from this T-square? What we can deduce is that Mora had a tendency to romanticize people and relationships or to put a lot of stock into a false sense of security. She was able to see what she wanted to see in people and even to ignore problems that presented themselves because she was so focused on the ideal. This made her more vulnerable to being taken advantage of or to staying in a relationship longer than she should have for hopes that it would get better. We also have an additional factor in this configuration, and that's Uranus, the planet of shock and surprise, making a trine to Venus from the 8th house. So this indicates that while she's in her romanticized relationship, kind of living in a fairy tale, so to speak, there's the potential for her partner to initiate unexpected surprises that shake things up, whether it's for better or for worse. Her 8th house Uranus also affects her life in other ways, since it's opposite to Mercury. Mercury describes how we think, how our brain works. And Uranus is also about thinking, but it thinks outside the box and it has flashes of intuition. This opposition makes her very smart and gives her powerful creative thoughts that can come at a flash. But it doesn't always make for drawing clear conclusions, because things don't always get adequately thought through. It's easy with this aspect to jump to conclusions, to be thinking all the time, to miss what other people are saying because your own thoughts are racing and you're having trouble listening. This opposition is also non-committal. Mora may have easily jumped to conclusions and then spontaneously acted on her thoughts and then had another better idea in the moment and switched to that lane instead, abandoning her first idea. I also think there are other implications related to this aspect, particularly related to driving. Mercury rules short-distance travel, and as we'll see later, this opposition was being activated leading up to Mora's disappearance, and I think it contributed to her accidents, especially the one on the last day she was seen. I haven't talked much yet about Mora's ascendant, so I'm going to do that now before we move on to her transits and progressions. The ascendant is one of the four angles in the birth chart, along with the descendant that describes how we view other people, our nadir, which I'll also refer to as the IC, which describes where we've come from, and the midheaven, which describes where we're going. These angles together form the frame within which we live our lives, and the modality that these angles are in provides insight into how that frame shifts over time. All of Mora's angles are immutable signs, adaptable and changing signs. So as she moves about her life, her framework supports her flexibility, helping her change her circumstances more easily and adapt. When I discussed this chart with my mentor, Alan, he noted that on the day Mora went missing at that time that she was last seen, there was a reversal of her angles in the transits. The ascendant was in 21 degrees Virgo and the midheaven was in 19 degrees Gemini. This is almost exactly opposite Mora's natal configuration and signifies a shift in her life's framework. But I digress. Back to the Pisces Ascendant. With a Pisces Ascendant, Mora was sensitive and intuitive, but had the potential to be easily overwhelmed by the burdens of her daily life. This is a critical point to understanding how she made decisions. For Pisces-heavy people, living in the physical world can be a real challenge, it takes a lot of energy to be here on this planet, to be present, to be an active participant in the menial, mundane requirements of living. And yet all of that is necessary. 
But sometimes, Pisces people yearn to be saved or to escape somehow. Mora had the ruler of Pisces, Neptune, conjunct to her midheaven, the line that represents where her life is taking her. This is the aspect that, for me, validates Mora's entire story, the story that we know, of her disappearance. When we talked about Javier Dupont de Ligonnès, who also disappeared without a trace, we talked about Neptune being confused, like the fog, where nothing seems tangible or clear. Just like in Javier's story, Neptune helped Mora become unseen. It helped her disappear. Ending up in a mysterious place was her destiny. With Neptune on the midheaven, she was meant to live a life that was a mystery to onlookers, the details of which couldn't be pinned down. And as we know, that happened. I just need to take a minute to acknowledge the similarities between Javier Dupont's case and Mora's case, because they're truly astounding. Both missing people had a Pisces ascendant, with Venus in Pisces. Both had a Gemini IC and a Sagittarius midheaven. And they also both had Libra moons in the seventh house. On the day that Javier went missing, and on the last day he was seen... He had Neptune, transiting Aquarius, in his 12th house. And the same is true of Maura Murray. Coincidence? I think not. So with that, let's get into Maura's transits on the day she went missing. When I first reviewed this case, I came in with a lot of bias. I truly thought that Maura had left Amherst on her own accord with the intention at that time of leaving her life behind. But the deeper I've looked into this astrology, the more I'm swayed in a different direction, and I think you'll see why. We're going to start by looking at Mora's progressions for February 9th, 2004, the day she disappeared. Progressions are different from transits because they represent life themes that were going on for a period of time. When we talk about progressions, we're not talking about acute events, we're talking about energies. So anything that happened in the transits at the time would represent acute events that were meant to carry out the themes in the progressions. So looking at the progressions, here's what comes up. The themes that Mora was experiencing when she went missing were using feelings to examine her future, as demonstrated by a conjunction between her progressed moon and her natal north node, tension around taking responsibility for her past in order to ensure a proper future, as demonstrated by a square to the natal north and south nodes by progressed Saturn, and an inclination towards behaving in old ways, following old patterns because it's easier than working things out in new ways, as demonstrated by a trine between the progressed south node and the progressed sun. The conclusion I draw from these elements in the progress chart is that Mora was being pulled to examine her life path more closely, and that something needed to change to propel her forward. She was going to be led by her emotions to that place, to making that choice, and it would involve going outside of her comfort zone. This was going to be linked to taking responsibility for the things that she wasn't proud of. So this conclusion could lead someone to believe that Mora left on her own accord. But it's more complicated than that. The other things that we see in this progressed chart are that she was reckoning with some serious relationary trauma, as demonstrated by an opposition between progressed Venus in Aries and Pluto in Libra. Furthermore, on the day she went missing, her progressed Mars was exactly opposite transiting Venus, indicating that there was some kind of difficulty, maybe even sexual violence, that led up to her disappearance. 
And with this, it's not so clear cut anymore. But let's look at the transits now to see what we can find that's a little bit more clear. On February 9th, 2004, Venus was about a degree and a half past its natal position in Mora's chart. This means that she had just finished up a Venus return, which would be a time of clarifying her values over the past year. But perhaps more importantly, this meant that she was starting a new journey towards finding stability. This new journey would impact not only her personality, since Venus is in the first house, but also how others saw her because of the first house placement. Also at this time, Uranus was square to its natal position. Uranus, along with being linked to surprises, is associated with individuation. We all experience a Uranus square around the age of 21, and this is a time where we're forging our own path, becoming who we want to be in our own image, separating ourselves from the ideas of who we should be that other people have pushed upon us. So this would be evidence of her leaving her past behind and creating a new identity. Well, as we said before, it gets more complicated than that. On the day of her disappearance, Uranus was square to her natal Uranus, which means individuation, but it was also square to her natal Mercury, and Uranus was in the 12th house. So this is the interference that I mentioned earlier in my assessment, the one that activated Mora's natal Mercury-Uranus opposition. Mercury, as we've discussed, rules short-term travel and also the mechanics of cars, and squares are tension. So here we have Uranus coming along, being its shocking self, and shaking up her travel plans, intercepting her drives, and causing accidents. I don't have a doubt in my mind that Uranus's position in the transits was associated with the multiple accidents that Mora experienced leading up to her disappearance, including the final one that we know of. It also has other indications that describe what may have happened to her. Since Uranus is natally in Mora's 8th house, it has a lot to do with how she gets involved with other people. There's a level of mysterious spontaneity that exists in her relationships and her interactions with others. On the day she went missing, Uranus was transiting her 12th house, which is the house of hidden enemies. So it would make sense if another person that represented that energy of Uranus showed up out of the blue on the day she disappeared intercepted her drive, and eventually contributed to her disappearance. So one thing I didn't mention when we talked about this story was that someone who had witnessed the crash had seen somebody in Mora's car smoking a cigarette, and it was a man. So that man, if he was truly with her, would have disappeared with her. And what about him? Where did he come from? And what did he do? And how did he contribute? I think he was there, and I think this Uranus represents him. There's one more critical element in the transits that we need to talk about. So when someone goes missing, we can look at their transits, but we can also generate a chart for the last time they were seen, and we can draw conclusions from that chart independently, without matching it up to the natal chart. Now, the chart I've generated is for 746 on the day she disappeared, which is when police noticed that she was gone. Now, the reason I chose this chart is because it's the time the police arrived on the scene and noticed she wasn't there. And at this time, Venus was in one degree of Aries, and it was in the missing chart's seventh house. Since Venus is so central to Mora's identity, I delegate Venus as her representative. In other words, I think Venus represents her in this chart. 
And here, Venus is in the seventh house, which is the house of other people, the house of partnerships. And I see her being handed over to somebody else, placed in someone else's care. But it's not compassionate care because Venus is in Aries. It's a dominant care, a domination. And we'll just go ahead and put care here in quotes just to make it more clear. But the bottom line is that there's someone else involved and this missing chart shows that. When we look back at her transits, those indicate that this is a time that she could easily have been taken advantage of by somebody else. She had Neptune, the ruler of her chart, in her 12th house, the house of hidden enemies, and it was exactly square, her sun at 13 degrees. This square is difficult. It's kind of like an existential crisis. It enhances feelings of guilt and it creates a unique vulnerability because it can accentuate the desire to be saved, to be taken away from your problems. And it can also indicate a period of alcohol use with Neptune ruling alcohol. And that's because you might have the desire to be taken away from your pain. So, it seems clear that someone else was involved in Mora's disappearance, but in my mind, it's not as clear-cut as somebody abducting her and killing her. I think there was some combination of outside harm and intent, and I think Mora was on her way to what she would have considered a safe place, whether her intention was to stay for a short or a long while. But based on the astrology, I don't think she's dead. In her transit, she has Pluto approaching her midheaven. And while Pluto can mean death, in this circumstance, I associate it with transformation, a rebirth without death, which would have been complete a couple of years after the disappearance into a new location, given that Pluto was in Sagittarius. So, if Mora did restart her life after her disappearance, where would she go? Well, based on her natal chart, I think she'd go somewhere woodsy to satisfy her nature-loving Taurus sun. She would have gone somewhere with clean air to satisfy her Libra moon, and she would have gone somewhere far away from her home to satisfy her Sagittarius midheaven, somewhere that mimicked the environment that she was traveling in in New Hampshire, but in a different part of the country or a different part of the world. I feel I should say that everything I've mentioned up to this point is just my interpretation of the astrology. Nothing is definitive. And we'll use that same disclaimer when we talk to Val in our next episode, who's interpreting her cards using her own talents and her own skill. So let's move into the next episode and see what Valerie deduces when she does her tarot reading. Was someone with more when she disappeared? And if so, who? And then what happened afterwards? Listen to the next episode to find out. But before you go, please take a minute to rate the show, give it a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, and follow the podcast on social media using the information in the episode description. In case you don't already follow me on social media, I'd like to introduce Laura Carey Astrology, my new brand which includes killer astrology and much more. This new name allows me to do more astrology readings, which is super exciting, but at the same time means that at least for a little while, I can only release new episodes of the podcast every other week, just so my schedule can adjust. I love this podcast so much, and my goal for the future is to get back to doing it weekly, or more, as soon as I can devote all of my attention to its production. If you'd like to support my goal of producing the podcast and providing astrology readings full-time, head to my website to donate to the show or book an individual reading. Thankfully, you don't have to wait till two weeks from now for another episode because the second part of this one is available right now. 
Go ahead and take a listen, and when you're done, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do.